Welcome back to On Call, a podcast from Amerisource Bergen, where we discuss the latest industry information relevant to our GPO member practices. In this episode, we met with Dr. John Marshall, a medical oncologist, Georgetown University professor, and frequent guest speaker at Ion Solutions events, as well as his wife, Liza Marshall, to discuss their book, Off Our Chests, A Candid Tour Through the World of Cancer. familiar with you, Dr. Marshall. But Liza, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So after John finished medical school, I went to law school and then practiced for several years as a communications lawyer, went part-time after our son was born. And then in probably the, the early 2000s, actually quit completely practicing law as John's career was really taking off and he was starting to travel a lot and became what I like to call a professional volunteer. So uh, served on the board at our children's school, became quite involved with our church and various organizations around here. And, and a point of particular pride is having been on the founding board of an organization called Hope Connections for Cancer Support, which was part of the wellness community at that time and um, have been very involved with that ever since. That's awesome. And how long have you guys been been married? Four years. Yeah, oh. 1984, which I guess makes this our 37th anniversary in June. Well, congratulations. And so how did you guys meet? We met over a beer keg at a fraternity party in college, so, which maybe, I don't know if that's classic or not classic these days, but yes, that is how we met. But we was, are, are seriously love at first sight. It was love at first oh. sight. We, we basically have been together ever since. Oh my God, that's that's so sweet. It was, uh, it was very good beer, if I remember. <laughs> well, it must have been for <laughs> if it was love at first sight. To to go from there, your book is about your own personal experiences going through your treatment for breast cancer. And what was that like when you got your diagnosis? Yeah, so I I got my diagnosis in a strange way, and that my husband was the one who told me and. He told me accidentally, I don't think had he had had time to repair, he probably would have, but he received, was accidentally CC'd on a pathology report that had my biopsy on it. And we were on the phone at the time when he received it. So it was a strange way to find out that one has breast cancer. And it was upsetting for both of us very quickly. I think we both sort of panicked in the, in the first instance. And then John, John quickly stopped panicking, or at least he managed to suppress his panic to the point at which he became a doctor and a, and a caregiver and moved us forward very quickly on, on what we needed to do next. Yeah, we, it was sort of this, what we call the wham moment. Your life's going along pretty well. You know, you're just going along, raising family and doing your job. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, it's like somebody put a glass door in front of you and you just run into it. You go, wham. And that's what this pathology report was uh, that was in the stack of my papers. We knew she had had a biopsy, but she had had a biopsy before and it was fine. And the imaging looked good. So we were, it was not something we were expecting at all. And it on a dime changed our lives. Right. And how was this experience receiving your wife's diagnosis, how does that differ from your typical patient that you see? How is that different for you? Well, so before I had that experience, it was just one more part of my day, right? So you had patients report good news or bad news. Your job was to give that news. And while you knew bad news hurt, you had to do it. It's part of what an oncologist does. And 
after feeling it, though, after having felt being on the recipient end of that kind of news, it took on a totally new, totally new burden for me as I then was disclosing data for my patients after that. So it was really a before and after transformation that afterwards, every time I got a bad scan, I could feel it a little bit as if it was mine. And what did you, besides having the kind of additional empathy when dealing with your quote unquote, typical normal patients in your practice, did you learn anything else from this experience that was maybe unexpected? Yeah. I mean, I thought I was the best oncologist ever before all of this. And as most oncologists, I suspect do. And I really thought I knew everything about it and was empathetic and did care and delivered information the right way so everybody could understand that I didn't really get it until after we lived it. And now I'm not encouraging folks to go out there and live it just to gain that experience. But part of why we wrote this book is to share that, is to share a little bit what it feels like on both sides of the room that we white coat people bring in certain vulnerabilities and the patients have certain expectations and vulnerabilities. And then you have a caregiver as another member of this relationship. And it's a little more complicated than we are trained or we think. And so hopefully this sort of insider's look, a very personal look of Liza's and my experience going through this will be useful for every member of that relationship, the patient, the caregiver, and yes, we white coats. <laughs> and so has this changed maybe dramatically or, or maybe more subtly the way that you treat your patients now? We sort of catalog this in the book. I mean, the punchline of this answer is that it it's unsustainable to deliver the kind of cancer care that we should be giving, right? If you're really the right kind of human that's going to be there for your patients, that's going to feel with them their experience to coach them as best you can, you break down your objectivity. And if you break down your objectivity, then you get exhausted, right? So every patient that dies, you know, it's a little bit of you that dies as well. And so it's really a reflection on just how hard oncologist's job is. I mean, Liza showed me how hard it is to be a cancer patient. I learned what it was to be a caregiver and I gained new insight about how hard the job of oncology is. So in trying to be that great doctor for every patient, it really nearly broke me. It was very exhausting. I realized that I couldn't sustain it. And fortunately, I work at a place that was nice enough to let us have a, a sabbatical year. I mean, I needed it for a bunch of reasons. One was to write this book, but one of it was to get a reset on patient care. And so where I'm sort of anxious is now having come back to patient care post-sabbatical, I've been doing it for a little more than a year now, of not slipping right back in to that same sort of very available place where I was that caused the, the pains before. So balancing those things is, is really a challenge for every oncologist and every oncologist has to find their appropriate level of objectivity and personal connection in order to survive. Yeah. I guess it's kind of like the putting on your oxygen mask first before others. Like if you're not taking care of yourself and making sure you're in the right 
headspace to do the job that you're doing, you're not doing anybody any favors. So that's great that you were able to take the time to get back in the right headspace to do the good work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, Liza always so, made the point and I'll let you make it. I'm not sure what so point. That, we, that if you're, what good are you to your patients? If you oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, I definitely have said to him, particularly as he was trying to figure out this sabbatical and he kept saying this is so hard I just don't know that I should do it and I said you know and, and also he was feeling very very guilty about leaving his patients I think that was for him the, the biggest part of trying to pull all this together and I and I said you know if you if you have a mental breakdown or you know, a heart attack or whatever within the next six months you're not going to be any good to them anyway so you're actually doing them a favor by taking some time off and coming back refreshed and renewed and able to to do the things that you need to do in the profession in a profession that really requires a huge emotional expenditure. Yeah, no, that's a great way to look at it and to frame it. And it's really great that you were able to do that. So we touched on the inspiration of why you wanted to write the book, give other people the the point of view that you went through being on both sides of this treatment. But can you talk a little more about what brought the idea to life of you wanting to write the book and what was the process like? Yeah, so we actually, this this book was, its genesis, I guess, was from out of an article that was written about us in uh, a local magazine in 2013. And a friend of ours who read it and is a writer and an editor and said, you know, you all do bring this this unique perspective to this experience. And we, you know, would you consider writing a book about it? And so took us seven years, six years, I guess, to get to finally find the, the time and, and emotional space to, to write it. And the sabbatical made all the difference, having the time to be away from not only from John's job, but all of our, many of our responsibilities and never mind emails and phone calls. And we were, we were staying in a flat in Oxford, England, and we wrote, I wrote in the flat every morning and John wrote down in the, the school library. And we would do that for three or four hours every day and really not, we would have brief conversations about what we were doing or things we didn't or did, you know, surprised to remember perhaps, but didn't really discuss what we had written until about two months into our being there, at which point we both had pretty much finished writing the main part and decided it was time to read what the other one had written. And so we did, we spent a couple of days reading and I think we're both pleasantly surprised to see how we did bring our different perspectives to it, but we remembered things fairly similarly. We certainly had some things we remembered differently, including how John announced the diagnosis to me. But we also had some some things that I think for each of us were kind of a, a little bit of a hurt to each of us. You know, I can't, I didn't know you were thinking that at the time, or, you know, I didn't know you thought that about me or whatever. And so we talked those through. And I think found a place where, you know, I don't, I don't think we really pull punches very much in lots of ways. And I don't think we really did there too, but perhaps we tried to mitigate them a little bit to be more understanding of each other. I keep saying one of my, one of my goals of this book is that we all give each other a little more grace in, in all of our interactions. And I think that is, that was what, something that we each had to do for each other in writing the book and, and looking back on the experience. I was thinking even like the title, it's off our chest for so many reasons. One of which is we, we had stuff to get off our chest to each other. And it was really important, honestly, that a lot of time had passed since the diagnosis and for us to 
at least for me, to get up, not the nerve, or, but at least get the shape around what I was feeling and why I wanted to share it with Liza. And then one of the maybe downstream benefits of this is that if other couples going through this or even doctors and their teams read it, they might feel the same things or that might spark discussions closer to real time that may be helpful to those as they struggle with uh, a lot of the feelings and thoughts that come up that go unspoken, that you really have to keep to yourself and understanding each other better. Maybe it just results in uh, better care, better communications, better outcomes, healthier relationships as one goes through the cancer journey. Yeah, that's amazing. Is there anything um, in particular that stands out to to either of you that you learned about each other during the process? Yeah, I think it stands out. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing for me was that some fairly major medical decisions Liza made more or less on her own. And these were uh, more around surgeries and, and things like that. I mean, I, I kind of stepped back as a doctor and tried to become the caregiver. So I was there really as a coach. And a lot of the decisions, uh, several of the decisions Liza made, she made knowing that I probably what I thought, but didn't ask, didn't actually include me and then in some of those discussions. And I knew that she knew that. So it wasn't really a discovery but we both got a chance in writing the book to sort of explain how we felt about that. So to me, that was that was an important thing that now I think honestly has brought Liza and me closer, even closer together at year 37 uh, than we were before. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I have any. I was actually I was thinking, well, people were asking us what we discovered about the other person, so I was going to say what John said, but then he just took mine. John, is there something I, I'm trying to think? Of? I thought I was a crummy caregiver, and you you thought I was not so bad. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I yeah, John John has said quite frequently that he he was not a good caregiver, and I think he was a great caregiver. I I I think he doesn't give himself enough credit, and I think many caregivers don't for the fact that they're not only taking care of the cancer patient. I mean, to, in my opinion, the cancer patient, I mean, yes, it's crappy going through cancer and there's a lot about it that is difficult, but you do get a lot of free passes that caregivers don't necessarily get. So I think that's hard. And we had young children and John was taking care of them. And, you know, on days when I didn't feel like doing things, he was also filling in that. And yet he was still working his full-time job. He did not get a, oh, well. I mean, people of course were nice and considerate and all of that, but it's, you know, life doesn't slow down unless you make it slow down generally. And and he really, he tried not to, which we, we kind of joke when we had our, our son, John was determined we were going to use cloth diapers and he was going to wash all of them. And within, you know, three days, all of us had a fever and we said, forget this. This is a stupid idea. So he, he doesn't like, he doesn't like to step back from things, I think. And, and I think this, I think one of the lessons for him out of this, and I think that he, I hope passes on to caregivers is that you do have to also give yourself a pass a little bit that you can't, can't keep up life to the to the speed and, and perfection that you were doing before um, somebody in your, in one of your loved ones was diagnosed with cancer. It became one of our themes, honestly, of the, of the book and a message that I was not practicing when I preached is that our patients work from appointment to appointment, scan to scan, treatment to treatment, and often in between have forgotten to live. And so one of my sort of coaching points to our patients 
is don't forget to live because that's why you're doing all of this crap. And I think I forgot that. I mean, I, that was my help. You know, my duty was to make it so they could live, not so that I could. And I think the sabbatical, in some ways, crazy enough, the pandemic has reiterated that, is that what's really important in life is not flying all around and having more emails than the next person, more frequent flyer miles than the next person, but is actually that time together as a family and the downtime that we have of when we decide what we're going to do while we're living. And it's it, it, so cancer taught me that I had to be retaught it by the sabbatical and the pandemic. Yeah, I was about to say that there's probably a lot of lessons that can be learned through this book, not only for people going through the treatment, but just making it through this year. So you mentioned that your kids were young. How old were your children during this? Well, they'll probably be offended that I called them young. They were 13 <laughs> and 10 when I was first diagnosed. That's still, that's still fairly young, yeah. <laughs> they were still at home and they were in they were in formative stages. I mean, our son was in eighth grade in a in a school that ended at eighth grade so that was a pretty big year mm -hmm. for him he was applying to high schools and our daughter was I guess in fifth grade and so yeah no it was you know they were they were definitely affected by it in some ways but for the most part we all I think had a very much of an attitude of you know we're just gonna I mean John says forgetting to live but I think to a certain extent we did remember to live and and in many ways that was a defense for us against what was going on and what might be depressing conversations. And, and we avoided a little bit by making a concerted effort to continue to do the things we had been doing all along, both with our kids and with ourselves. Right. It, it brings up what's most important and not so much a distraction, but like you said, it brings it to the forefront, things that you might have put off in a different circumstance. So many people don't really know how to manage their kids and not that we have any secret sauce for that, but we did try to be very transparent. Our kids were quite cancer savvy even then, just kitchen table discussions, friends, parents that they knew had died of cancer. So we didn't have to do a lot of new language around it because they had a good sense mm -hmm. of, of what it was. And it also partly comes from my childhood experience. Liza's mom had had cancer as a kid and my mother died of cancer when I was uh, 13 years of age. And so, and we both came from, it was a time, I think, where you didn't talk about that very much with your children. And yeah. today are smarter. They have more access. They are more in the loop. And, you know, it's still so many parents who are our age at the, you know, with their kids going through cancer, don't tell the kids or try to keep it a secret or try to, try to, you know, protect them. And I'm not sure that's the right answer for most kids. So it's not to beat them over the head, but it's to, you know, make sure they're in the loop that they feel a part yeah. of the discussion, that, that it's okay for them to ask questions. Because I think the, the, the unknown to me is more scary than the known. And so you yeah. give them information they can handle that they're ready to receive, then I think it actually lowers their tension and makes the experience less stressful for them. Well, I think we also found that children are paying attention to a lot more than you think they're paying attention to. So it's hard to keep it as a secret. And I think in general tend to fill in the gaps with, you know, the, the gloomiest thing they can think of when that may very well not be the case. And so we, I think we felt that trying to keep them up to date on the facts was probably better for their mental health than it would have been had we let them kind of create their own story from what they were hearing outside our door. 
Yeah, one definitely. Of my, one of my favorite pieces to this story is that then they read the article that ran in the local newspaper magazine, and then they've read the book, of course. And they're like, we didn't know, you know, like, why didn't you update us? Why, you know, we, we told them at the beginning, we sat them down and told them what was going on. And they just checked the box that everything was okay. I think one may have suppressed more than the other, but it's hard, hard to know. But now having living it again, if you will, as they've grown up to adults, some of those juices are reflowing. And it made Laz and me think that maybe one of the mistakes we made was like having debriefs, you know, at year two or year three of where we were and all of that. So it comes back to in the oncology world of survivorship, right? We've just been happy that you're not dead. Go on with your life. Whereas there is some other stuff that needs to be unpacked after the fact, even in successful cancer stories. So a lesson learned. Yeah. There's a lot of feelings to work out and talk through, and that's a good lesson to learn for, for a lot of situations. Is there any major takeaways that each of you are hoping people get from reading this book? Well, I'd say there are probably several, but the one I mentioned earlier, one thing I really hope is that patients and oncologists and caregivers and all those around them do really learn both to give themselves grace about their failings and, and ways in which we all wish we could be better, but you know aren't living up to that. And then also to the other people in the equation. And I think there's a lot, we really hope we've developed some understanding for patients about the lives that oncologists and not just oncologists, but all the people in the oncology caregiving professions do and, and, the, and how much of their patients burdens they do bear. But then also that oncologists will understand how much of patients' lives that, and what patients are going through that perhaps they don't really understand because they don't see it. They, they see, you know, maybe every two weeks for your, you know, chemotherapy treatment or whatever, and, and they hear what, what has happened over the couple of weeks. But, you know, patients generally, I think, also tend to suppress a lot. A lot we kind of joke about that, you know, you complain to your spouse during the before the appointment and then you go like oh no everything's fine I don't really want to bother you with that and you know so I think there's some of that as well and then also I you know I, there are a lot of people who surround cancer patients who are trying to help and I think we can tend to be critical of the way you know they you know they said the wrong thing or you know they know I don't like to eat that or whatever and you know I think accepting that people are trying to help you they really mean the best and to take it for that and to try to be understanding that they also are confused by this whole thing and scared and not really sure how best to help yeah I have almost nothing to add that the, <laughs> the, that the impact of a cancer diagnosis has on a family may be the a particularly serious cancer diagnosis may be the most impactful moment, the most impactful event in a relationship, parent-child relationship, husband-wife relationship, and to your village around you. And your relationship with the cancer care team sets the tone for that. And, and the role that we have as the cancer care providers is so important to how that journey goes. And yes, it means it's a, even more pressure on us all to do it as well as we can do it. But as Liza says, we don't do it perfectly every day. There's no way in a busy 24 patient day that you're gonna say everything exactly right. 
or your team's going to do everything exactly right. So when we're good at it, when we're bad at it, and moving forward to deliver the best cancer care we can is, is really a special place for us to be. It's a calling. It's a responsibility and it's a privilege to be in that setting. And we should value it every day. We should be proud of what we do, but then forgive ourselves when we don't do it well. And I think that's a beautiful message to remember to treat yourself with grace. Really being kind to yourself is a huge thing that I think everybody needs to remember from time to time. In life, we try to make light of things. That is how the Marshall family deals with things is through some jokes and, and, you know, picking on each other and being light about it. And uh, that's how we cope. That's a very important way we cope. So I hope the reader actually, if they read through the book, will come across our lightheartedness here and there as makes the book a little bit more enjoyable to read. So we hope a little bit of humor in the book is, is well received as well. That's all for this episode of On Call. Visit offourchestbook.com, link in the description, to purchase a copy of the book or to reach out to the Marshalls for speaking opportunities at book clubs or cancer support events within your community. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.